Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. Mark drops a bomb on his readers. John the Baptist is dead. We know a lot about John the Baptist, but do we really know who he is? Mark provides us with a contrast that really illustrates who this servant of the Lord is, who you can be as a servant of the Lord. Roughly 900 years, 900 years before Jesus, there was a prophet named Elijah. He was a mysterious and powerful prophet. His ministry was all about making the name of God great. And that's what he did. He spoke on behalf of God. He preached on behalf of God. He had big, bloody showdowns with the Baal prophets, and he won. This guy was so powerful that he spoke on behalf of God, and a drought began. It lasted for three years, and it stopped only when he spoke again against the drought. During the time uh, Elijah was powerful enough to provide for the widow, remember the widow who didn't have any oil or flour left, she had just enough oil and flour in her containers every time she went back to make a meal through the drought. It was a miracle. Elijah raised a kid from the dead. Yeah, Elijah was an extremely powerful figure in the Old Testament, and apparently Elijah never died, right? He's walking with Elisha, one of the other prophets, and then God shows up, or um, an angel of God, and carries Elijah away in a chariot of fire. Yeah, so he never dies. This guy is a mysterious powerful prophet, one of the key figures in Jewish history. It was Abraham, their great father, Moses, their great leader, and Elijah, their great prophet. Another prophet, Malachi, wrote about Elijah. He's writing about the the terrible day of judgment that's coming, right? The day of the Lord. And here's what he says about it. God speaking through Malachi says, look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before this great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And it's going to be a big deal. He preaches this and about here, sorry, he writes this about Elijah the prophet. The problem is that Malachi writes that Elijah is coming before the day of the Lord. He writes it 400 years after Elijah walked the earth. Yeah, he writes it at least 400 years after, probably a little bit more. It's an amazing thing that he writes that Elijah is coming 400 years later. He's saying that Elijah will come again. And Malachi's words are the last words in the Old Testament. This paragraph is the last paragraph of the Old Testament. And it's with these words, this promise of Elijah returning, it's with these words that the Old Testament is closed. And for over 400 more years, God 
seems to be silent and does not speak to his people. And all the while, the people of Israel are waiting for the Messiah and looking for the sign, the sign of Elijah preceding the Messiah. Then you flip the page and you get into the New Testament. Mark is one of the gospel writers, and who is the first character that Mark introduces us to? Yep, it's John the Baptist. Yeah, so this is really, really interesting that the last words, the last words of the Old Testament are about the return of Elijah. And Mark, the first gospel writer, he introduces us first to John the Baptist. Now, I preached a sermon on John the Baptist as we started this message series way back at Easter time. And uh, I wanted to make sure you had access to it because if you're going to understand the ministry of Jesus, you got to understand the ministry of John the Baptist. So if you look on your note sheet here, got your note sheet, you look on your note sheet, there's a little QR code, the top of the QR code, the top QR code of the two of them there in the bottom left-hand corner, that's your QR code to get to that message, really important message, foundational to this whole series that we've been in all this time. I just wanted you to, I just wanted to make sure you had access to it because this is really important, it's the first blank on that page, there is more to John than meets the eye. There's more to John than meets the eye. You look at John, and you know, he seems bizarre and wild. You see, he seems to be kind of uh, unkempt and homeless, right? He shows up, and what does he eat? Bugs and wild honey, right? He's wearing camel hair and a leather belt. He's wearing the worst clothes. He doesn't have much of a wardrobe. He probably hadn't brushed his teeth in six months, right? I mean, this guy's kind of bizarre and out there in the wilderness. What is going on here with John? Well, for the New Testament writers, John has a deep connection to Elijah. There's more to him than meets the eye. John is an ascetic. Yeah, he's an ascetic. That means he's part of a group of people who practice radical self-denial something that we are not familiar with at all in our culture today. Radical self-denial. That means he, he did not want anything to do with any of the comforts for his own person. So someone who is an ascetic barely eats. He eats bugs and wild honey. They no, no pizza hut for John the Baptist, right? They regard sleep as a personal comfort so ascetics barely sleep they sleep the absolute bare minimum that they possibly can clothing is regarded as a personal comfort you gotta have clothes but probably all john had were the rough awful clothes on his body they didn't have homes they practice radical self-denial, absolute minimalism, right? And he's out there in the wilderness, and he, when you saw John, the image that conjured up in your head is a radical, bizarre, Old Testament, ancient prophet. When you saw John, John wanted you to see an image something like Elijah from 900 years earlier. Of course, that's why people kept coming to John and saying, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? 
And his response was, well, I'm not the one you're looking for, but there's someone coming. There's someone coming whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. John's ministry was all about pointing to heralding the Messiah. In Matthew eleven fourteen, 14, Jesus himself identified John with Elijah. Describing John, he said, he is Elijah, the one the prophet said would come. In Matthew 17, Jesus is responding to his disciples. When they asked him, they said, why do the teachers of the religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? They didn't feel like they had seen Elijah, but here's what Jesus says. He says, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, but he wasn't recognized, and they chose to abuse him. He's talking about John the Baptist. All the gospel writers and Jesus himself, I all associate John with Elijah, the herald of the Messiah. So what do we need to know about John? Now, I preached a sermon on that, okay, so you can go back, but I want to kind of show you some other stuff about John today because there's a lot to know about John. We all know what John's primary ministry was. John's primary ministry was, come on, his primary ministry was what? Baptism, duh, we call him John the Baptist. So we know that John was all about baptizing people. Mark 1, 5, we looked at this earlier in our study. It says that all of Judea, including all the people from Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John, and when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. We got to be baptized in the Jordan River when we went over there uh, recently. John, first blank, next blank on your page, John baptized for repentance. John was all about baptizing for the repentance of sin. Baptism was a huge deal to John, to Jesus, to the early church. If you were going to be someone who repented of your sin, turned away from your old self to follow Jesus, the expectation was the first step of obedience would be baptism. That's why you see all through the book of Acts when they preach the sermon and folks say, what do we do? They're like, duh, you repent and you get baptized. That's what you do. You repent and you get baptized. That's so important for John, for Jesus, for the disciples, for the early church. Baptism is the first thing you do as a believer. Baptism is the outward symbol of your new inward relationship with Jesus Christ. Biblically, baptism is your public profession of faith. And that's, what, that's what's expected of all believers in the New Testament. And we try to follow John's example in this. We love baptisms here. We, we do the baptism in such a way we get a big tank and we put it right here in the middle of the room, right? And when people get baptized, I mean, we cheer and celebrate. Families gather around them, hug them when they come out all wet. It's awesome. It's an incredible thing. We love baptism. You saw a baptism testimony video right before the service began. We got another baptism coming up in just a few weeks, coming up in November. And if you 
have turned your life over to Christ, but you haven't yet been baptized, I'd love to invite you to join us on Baptism Sunday coming up in just a few weeks. Um, The path to baptism at the Orchard Church is through the New Life class. We have the New Life class, which is taking place, I think it's two weeks from today. And I would love for you to join that class. In that one-day class, uh, we will tell you all about what what being a Christ follower, follower is really all about, what the spiritual unlock key is, how to grow spiritually. Uh, we'll tell you what baptism's all about, and we'll help you write that baptism testimony so that you can have that public profession of faith. The way you sign up for the New Life class is you go to that other QR code right there on the bottom of your sheet that you got when you came in. You just go to that QR code right there, and you can sign right up for that class. It's two weeks from today, and I'd really love for you to take that class and be baptized two weeks after that on Sunday morning. So we just try to follow John's example. We prioritize baptism. Uh, But John didn't have a New Life class. He had a kind of a different approach. We see it in Luke. Now, you you know, we're studying Mark, but I'm giving you context here first. I'm kind of giving you all the stuff to understand uh, so that you can study in Mark better here in just a few minutes. Luke tells us that when the crowds came to John for for baptism, he preached and he said, you brood of snakes who warned you to flee the coming wrath. Yeah, subtle. Interestingly, this is how our new life class starts off. We call everybody snakes first. Yeah, uh, no, I mean, he, he did not pull any punches. Um, he says this, you brood of snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And then he, oh, he goes on, and he says, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Prove it by the way you live. Prove it by the way you live. Don't just say that you're a Christian. Prove it by the way you live. Live a life of obedience to God. And that obedience starts with baptism. And it says, don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. What does it mean to be a descendant of Abraham? It means you're a Jew. Right? It means you're Jewish. And he's telling Jewish people, hey, don't take for granted that you're ethnically Jewish. He says, that means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham out of these very stones. You, just because you're ethnically Jewish doesn't mean that you are in a right relationship with God. These rocks may be in a better relationship with God than you are. So, if he were preaching here today, he would say, you're a bunch of snakes. And he would say, don't take for granted the fact that you've always been in church. Don't take for granted that you were born into a Christian family. Don't take for granted that you're here every Sunday. Just because you're able to put your butt in a black chair on a Sunday morning does not mean that you're in a right relationship with God. The New Testament says, test yourself to see that you're in the faith. Does your life prove who you are by the way you live? So in other words, what I'm trying to show you is, next blank on your page, John preached for life change, 
John preached for life change. He preached for people to not just nod their head and get wet, but he preached for people to be transformed by God into new creatures, just like the Apostle Paul did, just like Jesus did. And we try to follow his example there also. We preach for life change here. But that's what got John into trouble, isn't it? So all that background to bring you to Mark chapter 6, where we pick up our study that we've been doing since Easter. And we're going to look at the story of what's going on with John the Baptist. Remember where we are, Jesus has gone to Nazareth where they lovingly accepted him, right? No, in Nazareth what happened? They rejected him. They hated him so bad. They were so angry at him, they tried to throw him off a cliff. So his own hometown rejects him. He kind of gets with his disciples. They get out of town, and then they regroup a little bit. And Jesus says, okay, now, disciples, I'm giving you a new job title. You're no longer just disciples. Now you are what? Apostles, right? I am apostling you. We looked at that as a verb last week. I'm apostling you. Now you are going to go and you're going to do what I do in towns all around the area. You go preach the gospel, you heal the sick, and you cast out demons. And so he sent these guys out. And as they go out and they're preaching the gospel on, the, on behalf of Jesus, they kind of cause a stir. Because now miracles aren't just happening where Jesus is. They're happening all over the place, right? So everybody's talking. And news, the news is spreading about Jesus and his apostles. And that's when we pick up Mark chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod heard of it. King Herod heard the news about Jesus and his apostles. For Jesus' name had become known and some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And others said, nope, he's Elijah. And others said, nope, um, he's, like, he's one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, a first-time reader of this gospel should get right here and go, what? John's dead? What, what happened? And it's almost as if Mark mentions that King Herod hears about the ministry of Jesus and mentions that Mark, uh, sorry, that John is dead. And then he's like, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you, John was killed. And now he goes back and tells the story of how John was imprisoned and beheaded. Wait till you see this. He's like, wait till you see this. Here's how it happened. So in verse 17, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married Philip's wife, Herodias. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. Okay, <laughs> That's a lot, a lot of bizarre weirdness. What's really going on here? Remember, John preaches for life change. And everybody is the subject of his preaching. He preaches to everybody. He wants your life, my life to change. But he's, not, he's also not scared to call out the politicians of the day. 
Yeah, John gets a little involved in politics. And Herod has just done this crazy thing of marrying his brother's wife. Now, time out. Let me give you a little background on this story. Okay, first of all, this isn't the same Herod. You know, the Herod from the Christmas story, Jesus is born or he's about to be born and um, he is born and the wise men come and they tell the king, King Herod, um, new king's been born and he's threatened by this, right? And so what does he do? He orders that, what? What does he order? All the infant baby males are killed in his kingdom. Yeah, so this is a big big important distinction this is not that same Herod that Herod is Herod the Great Herod the Great is powerful and notorious king Herod the Great was an incredible war hero an incredible orator public speaker and he was a skilled politician right so Rome expands into Israel while Herod the Great is the king. And rather than cooperate with the Jewish uprising against the Romans, Herod, being a skilled politician, he says, no, hey, guys, you shut it because they'll run right over us. And instead, he cooperates with the Romans so that he can have access to the cash that they're willing to give to cooperative regional kings. So he cooperates with the Romans. He quells the disturbances of his own people, and he uses the Roman influence and Roman money to rebuild his kingdom. He conducts massive infrastructure and building projects in Israel. He actually elevates Jerusalem to its absolute pinnacle of power and beauty because of the amazing public building works that he does there in that area. He's known as a great king, and, um, and everybody respected Herod the Great. But sure enough, um, just a few years before Jesus is born, Herod the Great passes away. And the Romans divide his kingdom up into four sections. And each of Herod's sons take over one of those four sections. He's got four sons, and they each take over a section. Antipas is one of Herod's sons, who becomes one of these little regional governors and he deeply desires to be powerful and famous and wealthy like his father Herod the Great but he's just the regional governor of one of the areas he's a tetrarch not a king that means he's just he's it means that the Romans see him as a fourth of the man that they saw his father being he's just an insignificant fraction he can't live up to his dad's name. But he's so insecure about this, he makes everybody around him call him King Herod. Herod's not his name, but he takes his dad's name so that he can maybe somehow win some of the esteem and respect of the people around him. They all have to call him 
king. Even the gospel writers call him King Herod, even though his title is not king. He goes to Rome, and he appeals to Rome, and he says, can I just please have the title of king of even my little area? And they're like, no, shut up. We will step on you. Go back home. You're the regional tetrarch, the regional governor. And he goes back home all sullen and sad and figures he's got to try to build himself up somehow. So he's, he's always looking for ways to validate himself because he's so insecure. So not only does everybody around him have to call him king, but he's always seeking validation by trying to build up his wealth, by trying to build up his kingdom. He builds palaces for himself around, you know, so he can maybe have some of the esteem of his dad. There's a lot of sex, a lot of drugs involved in Herod's life and what he's doing. You can imagine the crazy, weird, bizarre, depraved stuff going on with him. And his whole family's kind of messed up, you know, so... His brother Philip is in charge of the area to the north, and uh, apparently his wife, Herodias, I'm not sure how she got the name Herodias, the female version of Herod, but Philip's wife is Herodias, and apparently, I don't know, she's hot. And so Antipas, Herod Antipas, gets the hots for Herodias, and the thing is, Herod Antipas is married, so he kicks his own wife to the curb and steals Herodias from his own brother, Philip. And this is a giant political scandal in the day. Everybody's mad at Herod Antipas for stealing his brother's wife and marrying her and trying to pass her off as if she was his own wife all the time. This is a huge, big deal. He's just doing whatever he can. This insecure tetrarch is doing whatever he can do to build himself up. But really, he knows he's just a fourth of the man that his father was. And in Mark 6, 19, it says this, that Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod, that's Herod Antipas, feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and so Antipas kept John safe. When Antipas heard John, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. What? So here's John who's calling everybody snakes, including Herod Antipas, and calling out his sin so that everybody's talking about it. Herod Antipas hears John's preaching and he's perplexed about it, yet he heard him gladly. He wants to keep him safe. He doesn't want him killed. From all we can tell, Herod Antipas is one of these guys who hears it but can't hear it. You know what I'm talking about? They, they can hear it and they know there's something powerful there. He's heard John's preaching. He knows there's something supernatural there. He knows that that's something that I ought to be listening to. And he hears it gladly. He smiles. He nods his head. But there's no life change in his life. You know, it's one of these things where it hits up here, but it never makes it down here. You know what I'm talking about? Have you seen that before? No? Well, if you're like me, Maybe, maybe you should try looking in the mirror. Because there's a lot of times that maybe you're like me, maybe you hear it all the time. 
Maybe you're good at coming to church and sitting and listening. Maybe you're like me. You got podcasts on your device, and as you're driving or you're walking or you're exercising or whatever, you're listening to people speak godly truth into your life, and you're hearing it, but you're not hearing it. You know, you smile and nod in church. Amen, brother, and it's powerful. That's a good word, but by the time you get off campus, you realize that this doesn't really apply to my situation, right? I mean, are has the gospel made a difference in your life? Because you've heard it, right? You've heard the gospel that you and I were created in God's image, designed to beautifully reflect him into this world, but that we broke that image when we sinned and rebelled against God, and we became criminals, traitors against God, standing with his enemy, the accuser, instead of obeying God. We became guilty criminals, so we came under the death penalty, judged and condemned already for our sins. But God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus, who had no sin of his own, to go to the cross and and take all of our sin on himself. And he dies on that cross. He dies in our place. He pays the price that I owe for my sin. He takes my sin to the grave. And three days later, he rises again so that he can express his new life in and through me so that he can love you and change you into something new, right? That's the gospel truth. Have you heard it? Or have you really heard it? because it ought to result in something different in your life. When you hear the good news, it ought to change you. Jesus ought to come into your life. Holy Spirit ought to fill you, and then you ought to become a different person. So, are you more patient today than you were five years ago? Are you more loving today than you were five years ago? Do you love your neighbor even if they got a Florida license tag and they're driving real slow? (laughs) Do you love your neighbor? Are you better at generously giving today than you were five years ago? Do you crave the word of God more than you crave your favorite rerun TV show? Are you different now than you used to be? Is what he's doing, is what he's teaching, is the gospel making a difference in your life? It wasn't for Herod. And Herodias was looking for an opportunity to kill John. So in verse 21, an opportunity came. When Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Remember, Herod is an insecure tetrarch, and he's just trying to build himself up. So, hey, it's my birthday. I'm going to throw a big birthday party, and it's a big spread. It's a big banquet in the palace, and he invites all the who's who of Galilee and of Israel. He invites everybody to his big birthday party so he can show that he's the big man that he wants to be. So for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, look at this, Herodias' daughter came in and danced, that's Herod Antipas' stepdaughter, comes in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. Now, I I don't gotta draw a big picture for you on this. 
This is no little, you know, wedding dance, you know, where they're doing the, you know, this is not that. <laughs> right? I mean, she's dancing a seductive sex dance that makes everybody, including her stepdad, smile wide. All right, so there's some serious sickness going on here as his stepdaughter dances and pleases him and everybody else. And so the king, Antipas, says to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Now, don't get too hung up on this. He's not actually offering half his kingdom. All right, that was an idiom. It was a phrase that people used in that, in that day. I'll give you half my kingdom. It just meant I want to give you a big gift to express my affection for you. That's kind of what that meant. So I'm gonna give you just a big, big gift. Whatever you ask, I'll give it to you. So um, she has impressed everybody, including Herod Antipas, and she's not sure what to do next. So verse 24 says that she went and she asked her mother, Herodias, what should I ask for? And Herodias says, you ask for the head of John the Baptist. And look at what happens next in verse 26. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Here's Herod Antipas, and she has publicly come and said, give me the head of John the Baptist. And dude doesn't want to do that. Dude doesn't want to give up John. He's got some level of respect for John. He knows that there's something more to John, but he's looking around and all eyes are on him right now. And he's got to save face. He's got to prove that he's the big man. And so he's got to come through on what he promised. He had put on a big show, but next blank on your page, Herod was scared. Herod was scared, and so he led out of fear, and he gave the order. In verse 27, immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl passed it along to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and they laid it in a tomb. John's ministry, John's life ended all because Herod Antipas was an insecure tetrarch. He led out of fear. He gave in to what his stepdaughter had done and had asked. And he had to save face. In order to build his own kingdom, he led out of fear. And he had John executed. Hey, don't act like you're not like this. Because you and I are very much like Herod Antipas. We are all trying to live up to some unrealistic, some idealistic expectations that we think other people have of us. All of us are caught up in this trap where we think that we've got to build our kingdom and look good to everyone else, right? So we spend too much and we give too little. 
We do what we got to do to protect our image and make sure everyone thinks well of us, don't want to lose face. And so we fight. We fight for our rights. We fight to have the last word. I, I want to talk to men for a second because men, I think that we're the worst at this. I think that we're terrible at this. I think that secretly we're all trying to build our own little kingdom and we want everybody to think well of us. We're gonna do it quietly. We're not gonna make a big deal of it, but we wanna make sure everybody knows who we ought to be while we know we're really a fourth of who we ought to be. I just wanna wanna look at one example in Ephesians. I wanna look at Ephesians. Guys, look at Ephesians with me, Ephesians 5, there's a whole passage about marriage relationships, and it starts off with this one sentence. It says, to all of us, men and women alike, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. Husbands and wives submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then from there, Paul gives specific instructions on how that works to wives and then to husbands. We'll look at wives first out of courtesy. Ladies first. (laughs) For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should also submit to your husbands in everything. Wow. Wow. Okay, here's what I'm tired of. I'm tired of husbands holding this passage over their wives' heads. You submit to me. I'm the king of the castle. I'm the head of the household. I'm in charge. Actually, we don't do the I'm in charge thing, do we? We don't really practice I'm in charge so much. We practice, instead of I'm in charge, here's what we practice. We practice, yes, dear. (laughs) Right? Yes, dear. Because that's the way to keep peace, right? Happy wife. Amen, brother. My verse, my life verse. It's not in the Bible. You know that's not in the Bible, right? (laughs) Yes, the way we do it. Here's the way it works in my car. All right? Here's the way it works. So uh, we're in Canton. Um, where you want to go for dinner? I don't care. You pick. All right. I know this trap. Uh, uh, you know, seriously, I, I don't. I couldn't care less. Where do you want to go? Yeah, seriously, can you not just pick? I, I'm telling you to pick. It's your job to pick. Head of the household. All right, here we go again. Um, let's play the game. So here we are in Canton. Let's see, we can go to La Perea. Um, we can go to Provino's or Olive Garden. Uh, there you go. Uh, one of those three. Can you, seriously, can you not just pick one? Look, I narrowed it down for you so you can pick one of those three. Made it easy for you. You, you only have to pick from three. Seriously, I don't care. Where do you want to go? Just pick it. All right, we'll go to Olive Garden. Oh, I'm not going to Olive Garden. (laughs) 
Why are you laughing? <laughs> All right, so uh, there's two left. What, what, what would you like? Would you like La Perea or would you like Provino's? <sighs> Seriously, I don't care. <laughs> All right, well, let's go to La Perea. Now we're going to Taco Mac. Pull in over here. We're going to Taco Mac. <laughs> Wasn't on the list, so what do I say? Yes, dear. Yeah. Amen, Sherry? That is the way that works. We practice yes, dear, because, because we don't want to, we, it's not that we're not willing to pick. We just know that if we pick wrong, we're going to hear about it for the rest of the week. Right? We know if we pick wrong, you're going to be unhappy. And we don't want to ruffle your feathers. We don't want to make you upset. So we're going to practice yes, dear. Because that's the easiest path to our kingdom being built. It's not the best path, but it's the easiest path. We are lazy, insecure, tetrarch leaders. Here's what, here's what Paul says in Ephesians 5 for husbands. Look at this. For husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her, the bride of Christ, to himself, the groom, as the glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. Men, this is our job. It's not to be an insecure tetrarch and leading lazy. Our job is to so love our wives that we're loving her clean. You hear me? Our job is to love her clean. That means that our love for her should be so strong and so powerful that we should love her closer and closer and closer to Jesus. The goal of our love for our wife should be to see her more and more in the image of God. This is our job, men. Our job is not, yes, dear, but our job is to say, family, we're gonna have our butts in church every Sunday. We're going to come to church, and we're going to listen, and we're going to talk about it afterwards. We're going to be growing in Christ. Family, we're not going to fight about stuff that's pressuring us as a group. Instead, we're going to pray about it together. Come on, let's get around the kitchen table, and let's, let's read God's Word, and let's pray together. We're going to be in the Word, and we're going to be in prayer because we're all about becoming more and more like Jesus. When you sit down and have those money talks, you know, those budget talks, and you say, I don't know, where, I don't know if we can afford this or I don't know how we got into this situation, the first question ought to be, are we giving? Are we giving the way God's called us to give? You husbands should be loving your wives to where she sees more and more that your priority is Christ so that her priority becomes more and more like Christ. Submit to one another doesn't mean yes, dear. It doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that you're saying <clears throat> that she's in charge or you're in charge. Biblical, godly male leadership means that you are loving and sanctifying those who are in your charge. Amen? 
That's what we're called to do. Stop being all yes, dear, and building your kingdom by just rolling over, and instead lead your spouse to Christ. Lead your kids to Christ. Act like he's a real member of your family. Act like he really belongs in your life. Act like he really is a part of your conversations and start leading your family more and more to Christ. Amen, give me an amen on any of this stuff. All right, that's my little hobby horse for the day. Don't lead like Herod out of fear, yes, dear. Instead, lead like John the Baptist, who knew who he was and knew what he was called to do and unapologetically obeyed God. That's how we lead, men. Lead like John. Jesus in Matthew 11 says, I tell you the truth of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Yet, he says, even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. He's saying that John is great because he led out of confidence in who God was in his life. And he says, you can be even greater you don't have to roll over. You don't have to play the insecure tetrarch. You don't have to be trying to build your kingdom, but instead live for Christ and build his kingdom. In other words, last blank on your page, live by faith, not by fear. Amen. Amen.